Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the policies, technologies, and collective action needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. I don't think I can overstate the importance of having more data, more robust analyses, and a clearer picture of the rapidly shifting carbon removal landscape in helping accelerate the scale-up of this essential suite of climate technologies. For too long, the lack of visibility on how this dynamic sector is taking shape has kind of limited our ability to fully advocate for supportive policies, attract sufficient investment, craft an informed public narrative, and make optimal decisions about carbon removal deployment. My guest today, alongside a number of contributing authors from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the University of Oxford, and other research institutions, decided to shed some light in the midst of this obscurity by publishing The State of CDR earlier this year. It's a report that provides a clear snapshot of where the CDR sector is today, and even some line of sight on where it could go tomorrow. If you haven't read it yet, I consider it a must-read for anyone who works in carbon removal. I'm excited about this conversation because in addition to covering this groundbreaking work, we also spent some time talking about how other recent technologies, including solar PV, achieved rapid scale while coming down the cost curve by using technology push and demand pull levers. Much of my day-to-day work involves thinking about how to adapt these system-level approaches that have created the successes we see in solar, wind, and battery technologies to achieve similar cost and scale outcomes for carbon removal. This is easily one of the most edifying episodes I've had a chance to do, and I hope you find it as informative and enlightening as I did. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or at carboncurve.substack.com. And if you'd like to get in touch, shoot me a note at naeem at carboncurve.co. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Today, my guest is Professor Gregory Nemet. Gregory Nemet is a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He teaches courses in policy analysis, energy systems, and international environmental policy. Nemet's research focuses on understanding the process of technological change and the ways in which public policy can affect it. He received his doctorate in energy and resources from the University of California, Berkeley. His AB is in geography and economics from Dartmouth College. He received an Andrew Carnegie Fellowship in 2017 and used it to write a book on how solar PV provides lessons for the development of other low-carbon technologies. How Solar Energy Became Cheap, a Model for Low-Carbon Innovation. He was awarded the inaugural World Citizen Prize in Environmental Performance by APPAM in 2019, and he is currently a lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's sixth assessment report. Greg also co-authored the State of Carbon Dioxide Removal, or State of CDR report, The State of CDR Report is the first comprehensive global assessment of the current state of CDR. It describes the gap between how much CDR countries are planning to deploy and what is needed in scenarios to meet Paris climate goals. It finds that the size of the CDR gap differs across scenarios depending on how the global economy is transformed to achieve net zero emissions. It also finds that there are currently few plans by countries to scale CDR above current levels, exposing a substantial shortfall, which is what we'll get into today. Greg, it's great to have you on the show. Good night. It's great to be on your pod. So 
Before we get into the state of CDR, I wanted to spend some time talking about the book you published in 2019 that I'm a huge fan of, and I know many of our listeners are a huge fan of as well. It is the book, How Solar Energy Became Cheap, A Model for Low-Carbon Innovation. I think it was so uh, integral for me in my journey in learning about carbon removal in thinking about some of the parallels and key differences between how solar energy went down its cost trajectory and scale and how that impacts or how that is relevant to carbon removal. So I guess it'd be great if you could tell us a little bit about that book and what parallels you can draw at this stage of the emerging carbon removal sector and the pathway down the cost curve that we've seen with solar PV. Yeah, of course. So first of all, the story of solar getting cheap is really a phenomenal one that we talk about the cost coming down by a factor of 10,000 over a period of long time, about 70 years. It was international flows of knowledge and people and money and goods and machines moving around the world that all enabled that. And now we have solar at getting close to between four and 5% of global electricity supply growing at 30% a year so that you start doubling every two or three years and you don't need too many doublings for it to go from 4% to a big part of the global energy system. So that's given us something interesting to look at and understanding how it happened uh, to some extent gives us a playbook that we could apply to other technologies. And for example, in a lot of ways, what we're seeing with lithium ion batteries used for electric vehicles, but other applications as well, is using a lot and a lot of the same ideas and same mechanisms for getting the cost down and getting adoption to happen and taking advantage of niche markets and iterations and learning by doing and learning curves and all of that's happening with batteries. And then I guess the question is, uh, could we apply that to other technologies? So it's tempting to start to think about how we could apply that to carbon removal. And yeah, in the last third of the book, I did look at that to some extent. And there really are some some parallels, like we can think about the global aspects of innovation that are also relevant, the emphasis on the demand side, and it's not just about improving the technology, but but it's about creating markets. The role of small niche markets with high willingness to pay has been crucial in the early periods. I think that's also very relevant. And that the scale up, even if it seems like something we really need or really want, that even with that, that scale up is limited and takes time and there's some gradual aspects to it. So I think there's a lot of things to take away that are relevant and similar. And there are also uh, contrast differences. One of the first things I'd start with is that solar is about making electrons move around and a lot of CDR is about taking molecules out of the atmosphere and putting them somewhere else. And so there is something a little bit more inherently physical and material intensive about carbon dioxide removal technologies. And so that's where we have to start to think about other analogs too. So I think in short that we can learn a lot from things like solar and apply them to carbon dioxide removal, but it's also made us think that we should go look at other analogous technologies too. And for example, I have a postdoc, Cameron Roberts, who's looked at ammonia synthesis that happened in the 20th century. And that seems to be the best analog for high temperature, large scale direct air capture, for example. So looking at other analogs is going to be helpful to really inform how we do carbon dioxide removal. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I've always been intrigued by how quickly solar went down the cost curve in the last decade or two, but it took a while to get there. But it was mm -hmm. by a factor of 10,000, you said, which is significant. And I'm not sure that we need that factor of cost reduction for carbon removal, or even if that's possible. 
but it sounds like the idea of looking at other analogs in different industries that better match to direct air capture and other kind of novel carbon removal technologies is a really great way to think about this. What was great about the solar analog for me was just to understand some of those key concepts around demand pull and some of the policies that can push forward innovation. There's just so much there that might have a different effect or look different in the application of carbon removal, but felt very real because of the solar analog that you used. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's right. You know, thinking about markets, thinking about how technology moves and thinking about how know-how moves around. And I, I agree, probably the cost targets don't need to be a factor of 10,000. And maybe the cost is important, but not as important as how quickly we can scale it. And that'd be something that we can come back to later. But that's something that we're looking into quite a bit now is how, how fast we can scale it up to climate relevant scale. That's great, because at the end of the day, that's the goal. So let's start with a seemingly simple question, but I think one that is complicated, but I think foundational as the carbon removal sector matures. How do you define carbon removal? Yeah, we spent a chapter in our state of CDR report making really clear what we mean and what's included and what's excluded. But our definition is really about that CDR involves capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and storing it durably, keyword there, on land, in the ocean, geological formations, or in products. So we use the definition of CDR as capturing CO2 from the atmosphere and storing it away for decades to millennia. So that's our simple, straightforward definition, but you know, it includes a lot of things and excludes some things that are sometimes confused with carbon dioxide removal. Yeah. And that's worth kind of checking in on quickly. So if we have point source carbon capture from a power plant and that's stored away in some geologic formation, that's not carbon removal. That's carbon capture and storage, correct? Yeah, right. And then there's some similarities there. So we're doing some capture, which is quite similar, different concentration of CO2. That's different, but there is capture. And then there's transportation and storage and need for long-term durable storage. So that's similar, but the big difference that is important, our definition is you can't go negative with carbon capture and sequestration or just avoiding some emissions. So that means you can't use CCS to address some critical things that are important for getting to net zero emissions, which is overshoot, like we can exceed our temperature targets and then come back with CDR and then dealing with residual emissions. So emissions that we never actually get to zero. And so compensating for those with negative emissions. So CCS can be helpful, but it doesn't help with overshoot and it doesn't help with residual emissions. Yeah, that's important. And I think that when we yeah. talk about the difference between carbon capture and carbon removal, we haven't spent enough time talking about the different role that these suites of technologies or approaches actually try to solve. And when we do it that way, the difference between carbon removal and carbon capture and storage become pretty clear, right? We're talking about the potential for overshoot and residual emissions being the role for CDR. And CCS is kind of avoiding emissions that might come from a point source. And another thing that's useful to kind of clarify is if you are removing carbon from the atmosphere through direct air capture, which I think people would bucket as a carbon removal technology, but you're using it in aviation fuel, does that constitute carbon removal? No, it's not carbon removal. So because the CO2 will go back into the atmosphere when you combust that synthetic e-fuel that's been made. So you're not actually getting negative from that. It could be really helpful because in a lot of modeling, one of the sources of residual emissions, that's emissions that we never actually get to zero, 
is in aviation, especially long distance aviation. So e-fuels could be really helpful, uh, but it's not negative. And so that's an important distinction to make. And so that really comes down to how long the carbon is stored if we're using it. And you can think of it where it's not long at all, like in an e-fuel or in a beverage or a food where we use CO2 to fertilize greenhouses and things like that. So there it's, you know, days or weeks that we're storing the CO2 versus mineralizing it and storing it almost indefinitely as rock where it's centuries. And there's different levels in between and that matters. But yeah, that's an important distinction to make that really comes down to how long the carbon is stored. And I noticed that there's still not a lot of consensus around how we define durability around storage, right? I mean, in the definition in the report, it was decades to millennia. That's a big, big range. Are there efforts to try to tighten that range down and get a little more consensus around what are we actually talking about when it comes to durable storage of carbon? Yeah, I think there's a lot of work on this. I wouldn't say, though, that we're ever going to have a threshold. We're not going to get a line and say 100 years is enough. Below that is not enough. It's really going to be if we have things that are long term, like centuries to millennia, then we've taken care of the problem with that kind of storage. If it's shorter term, like decades, that doesn't mean it can't count as CDR, but it does mean that there's a liability that's created. If we have some effort where we think the longevity of CO2 and wood products that's put in a building is, for example, 50 years, um, that can be negative. That can be removal. It's just that we need to make sure that there is a mechanism for at the end of that lifetime, that expected lifetime of that carbon saying what products, that there's a mechanism for making sure that continues uh, longer. And so it also might mean that if we have incentives or thinking about costs and things like that, that we probably don't want to be thinking just in dollars per ton, but we really want to be thinking in dollars per ton per year of storage. And so that's going to lead to some more subtlety in terms of how we value the different methods based on how long the storage can be relied on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that kind of segues into my next question around differentiating between conventional and novel approaches. I've noticed that we've had the dichotomy around engineered versus nature-based, which I hate. We have shorter duration and longer duration. Okay, I can kind of get my head around that. But in the state of CDR report, you differentiate between conventional and novel approaches. Why didn't you take that approach and how are you differentiating between that? Yeah, we didn't start to make that kind of separation. I think we just started thinking there's many different ways to do carbon removal and we're just going to put it all together and see what it looks like. But then as we did that, it became really clear as we were trying to understand like the gap between how much we'll need and how much we have or are planning on that there are really different dynamics between the pretty substantial amount of carbon removal we're already doing in what we call conventional. So conventional CDR is where we capture and store carbon in the land reservoir. It's, it's mainly trees through forests and reforestation, afforestation. And that's really different. And that's been around for a long time. And there's a substantial amount that actually is happening versus everything else, which we're calling novel carbon dioxide removal, where the amounts are small and haven't been around as long. And it's all about how much they can grow and to some extent, how much the cost can come down. In the future, we mentioned already direct air capture. That's something that fits into that novel carbon dioxide removal. But if we look at what's already happening with trees, we're already doing something like 2 billion tons a year of removal with conventional CDR. And so that's important to make that distinction between conventional and novel because the growth challenge is really different. So with trees, 
conventional CDR, we're talking about maybe doubling with novel CDR, we're talking about like factor by thousand. And that's where it starts to look more like what we've done with wind and solar and electric vehicles. That's the kind of challenge we face. Right. And that's a helpful way to differentiate between these approaches, because then it can kind of focus the set of interventions that we need to apply in order to achieve scale. It looks like conventional versus novel approaches just need an entirely different suite of policy and market supports in order to grow and address our larger carbon removal challenge here. The report itself includes a pretty thorough analysis of peer-reviewed scientific CDR literature. And the findings indicate about 28,000 English language studies. Were there any notable trends you noticed about these studies? Are there certain pathways or disciplines or geographies that are more represented while others are underrepresented in your view? Yeah. And, you know, this assessment of the 28,000 CDR uh, articles was led by Jan Mink's group at MCC Berlin. And that really came out of his work with the IPCC, where they're trying to review studies and realize there's way more studies out there than can be read by a single or even a, a small team of humans. And so they're using uh, machine learning tools to categorize articles based on what's in the titles and abstracts and text. And so some of the things by doing that analysis is, yeah, there's one, there's 28,000 studies. They've been growing steadily over the last 20 years. Uh, there is a focus increasingly on Asia and in particular on China. So that's really been a hotspot in producing CDR research. In terms of topically, we see a variety of different areas, but the technology with the most articles on them is biochar. And I think that surprised some of us if you're thinking about how much attention biochar gets, but realize now that biochar has gotten a lot of attention. There's been a lot of peer-reviewed work on that. And then there's also that analysis reveals the structural holes, places where we don't see research happening, where we feel like we should. And we don't see a lot of authorship from the global south on these articles, which is crucial because if we start to look at some of the modeling about where some of these technologies are deployed, there's huge contributions that the models assume from countries in the global south. And so that's something that we look forward to, both in kind of expanding our own authorship team, but in terms of pointing to where we need more literature and studies on impacts and capabilities and potentials in the global south. Yeah, I'd love to see more research out of countries in the global south around deployment of different carbon removal methods. You know, we think about estimating the total capacity that, that is currently being developed around novel carbon removal. And in particular, I think about direct air capture capacity. The report made an effort to estimate total current direct air capture capacity, as well as, I believe, other methods of CDR. What were the difficulties in compiling this information? Yeah, it was also difficult assessing how much conventional CDR is happening, even though that's existed for a long time. And I think that's the first thing I'd say is we got a really big number for how much forest CDR is happening and, and other land-based CDR of about 2 billion tons today. The complication of that one is that you can split it into direct versus indirect. And we just talk about the direct, which is the two gigatons. But if you look at what we actually have, it's more like six gigatons because the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere keeps rising. We're actually expanding the amount of biomass we have on Earth because it's fertilized by the CO2. And so that's an effect that is helpful in terms of growing CDR but one which we want to reverse because we need our emissions to come down to close to net zero. And so that fertilization effect goes away and we probably actually going to have to compensate for what we've relied on so far from the 
increase of CO2. So as we decrease how much of that effect happens, we'll just focus on the direct. So that's where we got the two gigatons of conventional. And then for the novel, we were very comprehensive about that. I mean, that's kind of getting to your question there, but putting all together and we come up with, you know, 0.1%. So about 2 million tons of CO2 is being captured by novel methods. So it's two gigatons. So it's 0.002 gigatons of novel CDR. So it's trivial. It's a tiny part. But what's happening, it's really small compared to what we need to get to. But that was putting together information we have on purchases of novel CDR, of looking at contracts that have already been paid for, of looking at other assessments and looking at the individual plants and plans there. And that's where we get our number of 2 million tons of CO2. And just to put that in perspective, that's basically one coal power plant emits about 2 million tons of CO2. So we're talking about doing one coal power plant's worth in the other direction. And most of that is from biochar and BECS, and a small amount is from direct air capture. I think we end up with 10,000 or so tons per year from that. So these are all technologies that could be really important, would need to scale a lot, like by a factor of a thousand really to become climate relevant. So it's important to keep an eye on them now. And it's also important what happens to them in the next, say, 10 or 15 years. But right now, those are small. Doesn't mean they're not important, but they're not big enough now to make big contributions. And so it's all about how much they can grow. And actually getting to that point, the state of CDR highlights the gap between planned carbon removal capacity and needed carbon removal capacity. And I think that's yeah. extremely valuable because I think it's, you know, there, there's been analyses around what scale CDR is needed, but the state of CDR clarified that so well. And I think what that does is it helps reframe the conversation around carbon removal to be more precise, and it helps mature the conversation around the role of carbon removal by looking at a series of different kind of scenarios and then what's the gap that needs to be filled? And so we can stop having abstract conversations around the future of carbon removal and actually have much more tangible conversations about the future of carbon removal as we think about this gap that needs to be filled, depending on different scenarios of energy transformation that we're going to experience. And so I want to get into the three scenarios that you described in the state of CDR report and what the motivation was on your end behind this sort of framing, and then maybe get into why that kind of 10 to 15 years, the following 10 to 15 years are so critical for the growth of some of these novel CDR approaches. Great. I'm glad you picked up on the CDR gap concept because that was, you know, going into this report, that was really important where we wanted to get to. And I think we came away with something that's relatively clear, although it took a lot of work to get there to make it actually reasonable. So there's a, a few different steps that we took to make that happen. But I think the first thing I'd say is we used the database of scenarios that these integrated climate economy models make and are published by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that me and a few others were authors on. So we're familiar with that scenario database. And we used all the scenarios um, that qualified that would give a 1.5 or 2 degree temperature change. And so technically those are the C1, C2, and C3 scenarios that all give a 50% probability that we can stay within either 1.5 or 2 degrees. And so there are 550 scenarios, different combinations, internally consistent views of the future with different assumptions about distribution and economic growth and technological change. 200 of them were for 1.5, 300 for 2 degrees. So those 
those are what we used to evaluate the report. And working with scenarios, it's really about spanning the space of possible futures. And so that's why we used all the scenarios. To make it tractable, to start to talk about the gap, we selected a few archetype scenarios, scenarios that represented clusters of other scenarios or different pathways where we could go. And so that's where we focused on these three pathways. And one, we focus on reducing demand. A second, we focus on really aggressive expansion of renewable energy. And third was one where we have the highest levels of carbon dioxide removal. And I'll say they all lead to the same order of magnitude and how much CDR. So in the the smallest ones, the focus on demands, so these are these so-called low energy demand scenarios, it's all conventional CDR. So those were scenarios that were designed to see if we could reduce our energy intensity and keep high levels of well-being, could we avoid using novel CDR? And those technologies don't use novel CDR, but they use a lot of conventional CDR, like more than twice the conventional CDR that we have today by mid-century. So that gives you like five gigatons in 2050. The second scenario is where we use a lot of renewables. And there we have a combination of conventional CDR, like trees and novel CDR. And that's where we get to about eight gigatons in 2050. And then if we look at the focus pathway where we have the most CDR, that's where we have more residual emissions than others. So we haven't really decarbonized agriculture that way. And so we have more CDR than the others. And that's where we get about 10 gigatons in 2050. So based on those different pathways, we have five, eight, or 10 gigatons of, of CDR in, in 2050. Okay. That's helpful. And if we think about the novel versus kind of conventional scale that's needed in the scenario where we're focusing on demand reduction, there's a scenario where we don't need novel approaches to CDR really at any meaningful scale, but then that would basically more than triple or almost triple the conventional CDR that we currently have in place. Can you say a little bit more about what the impact of that would be? Yeah. So the low energy demand scenario has some pretty strong changes. It means that we have a lot of shared mobility in cities, that cities become really efficient, that space utilization, I think we're down to like 30 square meters per person. That's like about 300 square feet. Um, per person. So in some countries, that's more than is used today. In a lot of countries, that's less, but it stops the growth of having to do space heating and space cooling and things like that. So those are the types of activities that keep energy demand low and limit the need for doing carbon dioxide removal because that leads to really rapid and deep reductions in emissions. So um, that's what that gets you. But on the other hand, we do need five gigatons of conventional CDR. And so that means if we don't change the technologies that we're using, like the types of trees, that's something like doubling or more the amount of land that we use for carbon dioxide removal. And that starts to get challenging because at some point we're thinking about needing that land for other things like feeding people. I guess I would also say that part of the low energy demand scenario is that there's a much more focus on plant-based nutrition rather than animal-based nutrition. And so that reduces some of the land needs. And so maybe that's where you get the land to do a lot more of conventional CDR. So there are these interlinkages between how we do the emissions and how we do the, the CDR that are related to each other. But yeah, for the low energy demand, that's a conventional CDR strategy. And I think one thing we wanted to point out to people is that, and I work on that work, I think it's really important. 
And the one idea was that could preclude us needing novel CDR, but it does require a lot of conventional CDR. And that, even though that's not a technological challenge, we know how trees work. It's a social challenge because there's a lot of competing demands on land and will continue to be in the future. So that's, that's probably where the challenge is for the low energy demand focused pathway. That makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like with the other two scenarios, there's a significant amount of novel CDR that's needed. Uh, I've always been of the mindset that I hope we don't need so much novel CDR. I hope it's not something we need 10 gigatons of direct air capture or something like that. I don't know that that's a good outcome for the world. But it sounds like where we need to go is so many orders of magnitude from where we are that it almost becomes kind of strange to think about billion ton plus levels of scale we need to reach. But in the analysis that you did, was there a scenario that you thought being kind of inherently preferable or one that would just be more viable than the others? Well, that's a good question. I think maybe to me, those are two different questions. So the one that I think is preferable is the low energy demand scenario, because that's a scenario that really focuses on having high well-being with low energy demand. And colleagues like Arnold Frubler and others have done the calculations where you can get to the emissions reductions you need without needing novel CDR. And I continue to work on it. I guess, you know, part of the reason I want to work on it is to understand how feasible that is, because if we look at emissions, and this was one of our headlines in the IPCC report that came out a few weeks ago, is emissions are still growing and they need to rapidly reduce. And the low energy demand scenario has rapid emissions reductions from all these changes and reductions in using energy. And so we need to be turning this ship really quickly. And so I think it's an appealing scenario. And I work hard and was up early on a project this morning to see if we can make that uh, more feasible. So I think there's a trade-off between what's appealing and what's feasible. So that's one scenario I think is pretty interesting. But thinking about the scale-up, I mean, that's where it kind of comes back to this gap issue. And just to kind of clarify that a bit. So we're at like two gigatons a day that we do removals today, on, from, mostly from trees. And if we look at what countries have stated in their uh, submissions to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, we get about 2.6 gigatons by 2030, 2.9 by 2050. So it goes from two to about three in 2050. And then when we look at the scenarios, we need five, eight, and 10. Those are what I said before in the different pathways. So the gap is we're missing about two gigatons, five gigatons, and seven gigatons. And so that's a substantial range to fill. And then just going to the scale up, that means about doubling the amount of conventional CDR from two to something like four and about a factor of a thousand for novel CDR. And so that's another area of work for me is how do we get to a factor of a thousand? It sounds like a lot. It kind of sounds like impossibly a lot, but it's not impossibly a lot. If we grow some of these technologies from where they are today, you can back in the growth rates you need to get to a factor of thousand increase. And it's something like 40% a year, which that's a lot for things to grow for say three decades, but that's a little faster than how solar photovoltaics have grown over the last 30 years. That's not the fastest year that's average over 30 years. And it's slower than how electric vehicles are growing now. So that's one area of research we really look into is what has worked before that's scaled at that speed and what are the lessons to apply to novel carbon dioxide removal? It seems to me that the next 10 to 15 years then, as you were kind of alluding to earlier, seem really critical in closing this gap, especially if we're thinking about net zero by 2050. 
What in your mind makes the 10 to 15 years so critical? What does that investment actually look like? The next 10 to 15 years are critical because it's really about these being limited by growth rates. And if you look at previous technologies, there is this what's now kind of been called this formative phase of the early stage of a technology. And there's a a technical definition that means it's based on a normal distribution. You get to 2.5% of the ultimate saturation of the technology. And that takes a while just to get up to the 2.5%. But that also takes policy. It takes investments. And if we don't get to millions of tons of removal, probably hundreds of millions of tons of removal by the end of, say, 15 years, which is like 2040, then you don't get to gigatons. The scale up is too challenging at that point. So even though in these models, we're talking about 2050, and that seems far off for a lot of people, and the modelers will say, well, the real big contribution from carbon dioxide removals in the second half of the century, and that seems even more distant, there is a role, and actually what I think is actually a consequential role, that if we don't start really investing and in developing these technologies, de-risking them, legitimizing them, making sure the monitoring, reporting, and verification is trustworthy and reliable and dealing with some of the differences in the duration of the storage. Those things all need to be really fleshed out and agreed on and working really well, say, in the next 10 years for the scale-up process to happen. So just because a lot of the deployment happens later, 2050 and onward, to me, that means we really need to be getting going now on the policy and the investment and dealing with all these different aspects of the technologies, because if we wait till later, then it's too late to make it climate relevant for net zero. It's a really compelling way to frame the urgency around why we need to do CDR. You know, I think a lot of folks imagine carbon removal as something we need to do later in the century and we'll flip on a switch and it'll be there and, you know, it'll it'll serve its purpose later in the century. And then I think that there's folks who look at the scale that we're talking about here and just kind of throw their hands up and say, how are we ever going to reach that? But what you're talking about kind of reminds me of if you want to be able to retire with X millions of dollars by the time you're 65, if you put away $5,000 a year or something like that, 10 years earlier, you're actually going to be a lot more likely to get there because of the compounding growth. And it's kind of a similar, much more simplified, but similar kind of concept in that the opportunities to start building our understanding of carbon removal, de-risking, investing in deployment, learning what new challenges arise as we try to deploy some of these technologies over the next 10 to 15 years is absolutely critical so that we can actually have any chance of gigaton scale by 2050. And so it's this compounding growth that I think people need to get their head around, which is why there's this urgency around something that won't be doing anything at any climate relevant scale until 2050. But the work now, I think, is absolutely critical. And I haven't heard someone make that point so clearly in terms of why there's this important urgency. And I think another way we kind of try to think about the gap that we need to fill here is in terms of investment. And the report highlights that global investment in carbon removal is pretty small relative to investments in other climate tech, right? Out of $170 billion, I think carbon removal had something like $300 million at the time of writing this report. There's a lot of growth that needs to be done here, but part of your analysis looked at public RRD&D funding, research development and deployment funding. Are there specific countries or initiatives that you would highlight as doing this well and putting the funding where it needs to go in order to start to build on this urgency of what we need to do in the next 10 to 15 years? 
I'm glad you raised that because there's small amounts of investment now compared to all climate tech, but it's bigger than it was just a few years ago. And it is actually getting companies launched and customers established and transactions happening and raising the issues of how do you do verification? How do you make these contracts work? Where's the policy going to come from after these voluntary commitments and investments are made? How are investors going to get their returns? And so that $300 million that we find, even though it's tiny compared to the overall clean energy investment, is has been crucial. And then the other side of that that's also helpful is what's happening on research development and especially on demonstration. And that's where we come up with a number of about three, three and a half billion dollars worldwide on carbon dioxide removal research development and demonstration. And just to put that in perspective, we do about $17 billion for clean energy. So it's still small. And for something that's early stage and in this formative phase and just getting to the point where it needs to ramp up, we probably need to be doing a lot more on the R&D side now, maybe relative to later, but certainly relative to the three we're doing today. And almost all that three, three and a half is this proposed United States direct air capture hubs, which I think could be really crucial because for these types of technologies where you need to demonstrate that the technology works, you need to de-risk the technology, you need to learn from early mistakes, you need public sector to help fund it because there'll be a lot of spillover that everybody else will learn from. And also because the technology is still considered risky and the returns won't be there for a while. So if we want to three or four X the RD&D funding that we're doing right now for carbon removal, it's going to require other countries, you know, EU, Canada, other geographies to really step up their RD&D funding specific to carbon removal so that we can de-risk some of these issues and learn what we need to learn in order to do something at gigaton scale mid-century. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And we are seeing some of this happening. We are seeing the UK has gotten really serious about what they call greenhouse gas removal. It's similar to carbon dioxide removal with funding and even developing pipeline systems. There's infrastructure that's important to that. So that's pretty promising. We've got other countries that are starting to set targets on how much CDR they want to do. And then we've got other countries that are trying to think about picking their spots, about not doing a broad portfolio of investment, but figuring out the ones where they've got special capacity or there's a special interest in. And so I think that's going to be important as well. Double click on that a little bit. And going back to that kind of critical 10 to 15 year time horizon, in your view, what role does policy have to play in the growth of CDR? What kind of investments are we talking about? Innovation, regulatory, government procurement? Or at what level should we be operating international, national, subnational? You know, when we think about these different ways that policy can intervene here to grow CDR, what do you see as most critical moving forward? Yeah, well, I do see policy as playing a really important role here, in part because we're talking about a rapid scale up. So there's real urgency to it that needs support and rules and guidelines. And also because we're talking about a global public good ultimately that we're creating, which is a stable atmosphere. So there's definitely a policy role here. And I see it as kind of three components broadly. So one is on the research and development. And that includes research and development on methods to measure and verify fluxes of CO2, especially for dispersed ones like in oceans and in soils. That'll be important. There's a technology aspect of that that's going to enable markets to function because there'll be reliable currencies, basically. Second is that this early demand and formative phase and niche markets and supporting demonstrations and potentially even government purchases. Those are all things that we've done many times before in other technologies 
like in defense and aviation and in solar and in wind and other technologies where these early demand that's supported by governments plays a really important role. And then third is the long-term demand. And there needs to be expectations that if you do invest in a new technology and spend the effort and the manpower and take the risk of moving it from a laboratory idea to a climate relevant scale, that there'll be a market that will somehow reward you for that investment. And it doesn't have to be a market like we have for uh, electricity or shoes or something like that, where there's prices and it all just is all about transactions. It could be mandates. It could be compensation for other activities. So there's lots of different ways, but it's all about creating a demand and return on investment over the long term. And so setting those expectations that that compensation will be there is really important for stimulating investment. So I think it's the R&D, it's the early niche markets and demonstrations, and then these longer term markets, all of those are important to policy. And those are things we can be working on and developing and proving and experimenting with right now. Another aspect that I wanted to touch on before we close out was the issue around public perception. This is something that I think is going to be a big barrier for carbon removal growth if we don't get right. How is public perception around carbon removal assessed and what were some of the key findings? Yeah, I mean, I also think it's going to be absolutely crucial is whether people want to have these facilities in places, whether the policy is supportive. It's a long-term endeavor. And so there's no way in which you can ram some things through and just figure that's enough because we're going to be at this for a long time. So it's crucial. Ultimately, I think what we need to do is understand where people are about these things. And that's surveys and focus groups and interviews for our state of CDR to be comprehensive and global about it. We use Twitter to do sentiment analysis. And that's interesting because you can take the things that people write and use machines to characterize what technology they're talking about. And then also whether it's a positive neutral or unfavorable sentiment. And in general, the sentiment talking about carbon dioxide removal was quite positive. The one technology we looked at that was a net negative was ocean fertilization. That's probably because of some experiments that happened without a lot of uh, public participation 15 or so years ago. And then one technology that was still positive, but was trending downward. Most of them had been trending upward and more favorable over time was bioenergy with carbon capture and sequestration. That's probably because of some of the land use and deforestation issues that have been raised in the public that have come up. And so those are all serious concerns to take and figure out how to address. And some of that is about better communication and better understanding of the technologies. And some of them is about better implementation so that they don't create negative issues for the people that are around them. And I think a lot of it is going to come down to not just about perception, but about creating real benefits for local communities as we push these things forward. I think that's one thing I've really been encouraged by the U.S. Department of Energy's efforts on this is they're taking that part especially seriously. And so making sure that that part is part of the overall effort to scale up will be crucial because there's not really a choice between doing it fast and doing it with public acceptance. We really have to find a way to do both of those things. And so there's going to be a lot of work to do on the on the public acceptance part. Yeah, that's going to be really tricky. But what we've covered today just highlights to me just how much work there is to do. When I think about the State of CDR report, I think it is many things. One of the things for me was that it was so clarifying. It was so clarifying about what the gap was and where there are some key needs that we need to start acting on soon. 
And I hope that it elevates the conversation towards action. And I think it is, it's been very influential for me as I take on a new role, expanding carbon removal potential in Canada. And so it was a very helpful resource for me as I think this through. And one understanding that I had was that this report is going to be the first in a series. So what's next? Yeah. So that's something we just had a meeting in Berlin a couple of weeks ago about what we would do in 2023, 24, and what we would do differently. And we're currently working on fundraising to do that report. But some of the things that have come up is really important. Well, one is just to say what's new in 2023 and 2024 that's different from what we had at the end of uh, 2022. Uh, that's one. A second is to do more on monitoring, reporting, and verification, understanding some of the technologies, understanding how some of these transactions might work, understanding how they're happening today. That's important. Third item that we would change is we've done a lot of global assessments, and then we'll continue to have that global scope, but complement that with some more geographic distinctions between how much CDR is happening in different regions and countries. And that's a direction we all want to go and understand where the gaps are at a regional level, country level. That'll be important. And then fourth is to engage a broader set of authors to address all of these, including some of the parts that we found is lacking, like not enough perspectives from the global south and some of the dimensions that we're missing and need more work on. And so that's something we're doing now is expanding the set of authors to contribute to the next report. It's great. And that's an extremely valuable undertaking. I hope that you're able to kind of identify the funding that's needed to do that entire spectrum of work, because I think it's extremely valuable for the carbon removal space. How can people learn more about your work and how can they get in touch? Yeah, great. So stateofcdr.org, we put a nice website together, the reports there, some of the summary documents like presentations and executive summaries for people that want to get a quick look. In addition to people that want to go deeper, all the data for the figures are there and other data that we use in the report are published there. And there'll be more to come as we develop the second version of the report as well. Thanks so much, Greg, for your time today. And thank you for this excellent work that you're doing for the CDR field. Great. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.